While we're preparing for season two, we're also having conversations with dancers who move and inspire us. Last week, we shared our conversation with the dynamic Kandian dancer, Taji Dayas. If you've missed it, you can still catch it in all of our other conversations, as well as binge on season one of Off the Beat across all major streaming platforms and on our website, www.offthebeat.dance. Off the Beat is a passion project, and we really need your help to make this podcast a long-term and sustainable venture. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash offthebeatdance so that we can continue to bring you more content. And together, we can create a new dance future, one beat at a time. We continue our series of conversations with dancers who are forging new paths in their artistic, personal, and professional lives. And today, we're going to have an off-season chat with our final guest. She is a multifaceted dancer and choreographer who is trained in a variety of styles, including Katak, Manipuri, Yorcha, flamenco, and contemporary. She co-founded Kalamandir Dance Company in 2010, based in the vocabulary of hashtag contemporary Indian. She seamlessly blends activism and art through her initiative, Wise Fruit NYC, created in 2017, a tireless advocate for justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the world of dance and beyond. Please welcome to Off-Season Chats, Brinda Guha. Hi, everyone. Hello. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Brenda. I've been following your work now for a long time since I've moved to New York City. And the way that you blend the worlds of activism, social justice, brilliant choreography, and performance, you're really a role model for the New York City dance community at large. And we're just thrilled to have you here. Uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. It's interesting hearing my bio read, you know, <laughs> like it's like it's no, it's like it's great. But it's also one of those things that's part of the workspace that we are collectively trying to build. Right. And like understanding what needs to be in a bio. I always feel weird being like, I'm trained in this. It's like, no, I'm training in everything. It's always interesting. It's like we want to very finitely state what and who we are. And I always wonder if that's like a product of our conditions that we need to like place ourselves before entering when we view ourselves as a continuum, you know? Absolutely. And one of the things that I personally respond to, this is a little bit of a personal anecdote. I love your transparency, not only in terms of the intersectionality of your multifaceted identity, and you very clearly state that in your bio, on your social media, whenever you speak. And that's something that I've taken to heart, too. When I first moved back to New York City, I had been in India for seven years. And so the language of, say, PGPs and all that were completely unknown to me. So when I saw you putting out content on social media or in presentations or in performances, I took that as basically a model for myself on how to present myself as a dancer in this world in, in a responsible way. So I thank you for that. Oh, thanks. I mean, and I'm still figuring it out, right? Like these days I'm, you know, for the longest time I was like, I want to identify myself properly. I want to place myself in context of every conversation, you know? And then sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm a daughter. I'm a partner. I'm a stepmom. 
That's my bio. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am a person on this planet. So it's always nice to hear, though, that the contextual stuff is helpful and we can kind of show up to places with a clear understanding of what we bring to the table. And that means a lot to me. Yeah, it's most definitely been a model, I think, even for me, as someone who's sort of finding my way into dance beyond the classroom. I think one thing that I've always struggled with is the idea of taking up space. How do you do it at all? Forget responsibly, like the idea of owning space and saying, yes, I'm a dancer. That in and of itself has been a 20-year journey for me, instead of saying, I'm a student of dance to say, I dance. And it's been very meaningful for me to have seen the way you do own your space, but use it in a way to uplift, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons that I was very excited to be able to talk to you. I'm so glad you're here, is, is the short of it. Tell us about your artistic journey. Oh, what do you want to know? <laughs> do you want to know where I'm from? What I used everything. to wear in a dance class? Everything. 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 Okay. Chalo, chalo, chalo. So I'm from Lakewood, New Jersey, which if there's no context for that, that's by the Jersey Shore. And I grew up with my mother, my father, my brother, and my maternal grandmother. And we are Jersey born and bred and pretty pathetically <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> and my parents immigrated to, you know, the States, I believe in 74, when the, after they got married. My dad is a physicist and an electrical engineer. My mother is a dance student of Guru Bela Arnob and Amala Shankar. And so she had her own kind of journey with classical and contemporary Indian, I guess you could say, of her time and brought her skills here. And basically they settled in New Jersey when it came to, you know, they traveled the world, they did their thing for like 12 years and then they started a family and there we were. So in New Jersey, I was born and raised. My mother started her dance school in 86 called Kalamandir of New Jersey. It started uh, right in our garage in Lakewood, New Jersey where the garage door stayed open and there was a, a loud Indian woman yelling gibberish, which sounded like gibberish to all the neighbors. And people would drop their kids off on our driveway. They would come up through, not even through the house. They would go straight through the garage on a concrete floor, which we later find out is horrible for your knees. But that was what we had and no mirrors, nothing. And she ended up having a 30, 35 year career being a dance teacher in central New Jersey, tri-state area, Maryland, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. And yeah, I would say she probably taught like three, 4,000 people in her career and did a lot of work and really was a bridge builder for many communities. In that sense, I guess I mean, she was out of the New York City scape of dance. So she was in the suburban scape. So if that makes sense. So we had kind of an interesting intersection of Punjabi folks and Gujarati folks and Bangladeshi Muslims and Bengali folks and then American, you know, white folks 
and African-Americans. And we had just a really diverse group of people, very few men for some reason. My mom did not have that many male students and mostly Desi. But essentially, it was still this kind of like intersection meeting point for so many facets of our community. And I think in that sense, it's interesting because I grew up in that space. What was maybe a shoe-in for other dance kids whose moms were teachers, for me, it was like a childcare issue. My grandmother like didn't want to watch me all the time. She was like, take her on Sundays. That's my day <laughs> off. Just please take her. Like, you don't even spend time with her because she's always working. So just like go be with her. And then, you know, it just became routine. And then my parents, if anything, are consistent. So they believe in routine. When you listen to for 15 years, you know, it's just it becomes like the soundtrack to your dreams, essentially. I think by the time I was taking class, I guess you could say, putting it in air quotes, since I was four, but I didn't know what I was doing till I was like eight or nine, you know? And I just like found myself memorizing all of the bowls, memorizing all of the the instruction that Ma would give, the the storytelling that she would uh, that she would express. Um and I should say she's a katak teacher uh, in the Lakno Garana. You know, it was just a matter of listening. And I think about oral education and I think about the oral transmission of art. And it's interesting because we talk about it in an academic way about how to preserve art forms that are oral traditions. Part of it is just like embodied knowledge. I learned so much about rhythm and I learned so much about words and phrases and expression and uh, communication through the tone of how Ma spoke and through the inflections in her voice and the way she would talk to the babies versus how she would talk to the 55-year-old mother who's starting dance for the first time. I would listen to how she was communicating with everyone. I was listening to how she talked about the really ideal and beautiful confluence of Islam and Hinduism in Kathak to her Muslim and Hindu students who were in the same class. I heard all of it before I learned about the facts and the figures of it. You know what I mean? And so a lot of it's just embodied. And whether I wanted to actually stop my foot in class for the very first time or not, I was going to because it was around me so much. It was in my head so much. It was in our house so much. And so my journey really started in the garage in Lakewood, New Jersey. And then, of course, temples and and other studios that my mom rented over the years. And and it started there. Then I went to college. You know, I'm skipping uh, 18 years. But then I went to college uh, at NYU. And I studied mathematics and music theory. Mm. And... Yes, I know. Strange. I loved math. I still love math. And so I was a neuroscience major. Listen, I'm telling you, (laughs) as a fellow math major, um, this the rhythm, the math, the garage and the mom's tone. I'm just like that. Yep. I can see it. You're ah. feeling me, right? You're seeing it. Yeah. That's how I take in that information. You you found your people, Amea. You found your people. And listen, mathematicians are very proud of being mathematicians because it's very hard to graduate with a math degree. And we had to sit there and we had to listen to not that interesting stuff, (laughs) finally make connections to it like way later in life. Right. And so like I was like, why am I doing this? And then. 
you know, years later, I'm like, okay, my brain works differently. You know, I, I, I see, I see patterns, I see puzzles, I see logic, I see strategy, you know, in the things that I'm doing. My math brain, I would say, and even my music theory brain, I would say, has really informed my choreographic work more so than my actual physical dancing. But for choreography's sake, I, I know that had something to do with it, all my training outside of the arts. Yeah, I went to NYU and I made connections in New York. And then, you know, I've always been an arts administrator. That was my first job out of college. I ran the international program at Broadway Dance Center for five years. And, and now I work at Dance NYC. I have a dance company um, that started in New Jersey, but I brought with me to here to New York. And I'm part of a trio and I'm performing a lot and I teach a lot. And so... Here I am. I guess you could say 18. What am I now? 32. So whatever that is, 14, 14 years in New York. So one thing that wasn't mentioned in the bio for our listeners, Brinda has a trio called Souls of Duende, and she's an advocate for percussive footwork, which has been a huge problem, I must say, in the New York City dance studios. Every single time we would get complaints and, you know, nosy people trying to see what's going on, but they're not really like interested. They just wanted to stop. That's right. And it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I still remember when I was first in New York and it was the end of the era of spaces like like Faisal's and like these dirty, dingy buildings that nobody cared how much sound you made. There was a West African group in the back studio and there was a tap class in the front studio. And it's interesting to me the censorship and how people really want to quiet down these art forms that are rooted in communities of color color. And they're totally fine with random, you know, shouting and yelling that happens, let's say, in a modern dance rehearsal or something, or like any other kind of space where people are exercising volume and exercising distractions or like blasting music, right? But for some reason, like people want to shut down the drums, people want to shut down the stomping. This is integral to the art form, our footwork. This is integral to what we do. And it's interesting because those same institutions want to diversify their bill by hiring us to be their little percussive puppet. But at the same time, like a lot of times don't give us the resources to practice our craft. And so these are conversations that were ongoing conversations as these floors, like Marley floors, that doesn't serve us. That doesn't serve everybody, you know? Exactly. And so it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. When I do contemporary Indian and, and Kalamandir style of contemporary Indian dance, um, yeah, that's great. We have socks on and, and we roll around and I love it. It's good. It's good on the knees. It's awesome. But when I'm doing Gatak and when I'm in these other places, this, this means nothing to me having a muted floor. It would be great to like really take in the demographics <laughs> of who's renting these studios and, you know, at least be able to provide options. And it's always tough to find options to rehearse. You honed in on a very specific phrase about allocating the necessary resources to do our art, right? And that's something that I know that another guest has talked about on off-season chats as well. What does it take to curate? What does it take to present South Asian dance styles? Not even just South Asian dance styles, anything that has any element of live music or percussive footwork. There's nuances to it that a lot of curators, I'm sorry to say, in the Western world don't really understand or care to understand. I'm being very pointed when I say this through my own personal experiences of navigating the dance scene here in New York City. That's sort of the thread of conversation that leads me to our next question. So why did you choose to pursue dance professionally? 
when we discussed artistic journey, we talked about trajectory in terms of where I was and what in the time continuum, right? That was the context of what I was doing in life while dance was happening the whole time. It's just interesting because I didn't even actually talk about dance because dance was happening continuously throughout the entire time. And yet I found myself in these professional spaces and these other settings and these other places where I had to navigate other skills, mm -hmm. right? In order to kind of supplement what was happening with dance. And that was always my mindset. My mindset was always, I will dance gloriously and it will be great and I will love it. And I will have a job that makes me money on the side because it's just those two things. I don't know if I can make it work. As we study and understand the dance ecology, as we understand the economy of the arts, we, we are still having this discussion in a very, very big way. And I'm learning a lot by being at Dance NYC as their symposium coordinator and understanding so much of the research of what our economy is going through as, as an arts field. That being said, that professional switch, that, th that decision to start to present work, to start to share the embodied knowledge that I was gaining throughout my training, that decision happened when I moved to New York. And once I got here, I realized in New York, you can forever place yourself as a student and as a performer at the same time. Mm -hmm. Every single show that I saw, I knew exactly where those folks took class. You know, I knew exactly where they were training. And that was really exciting to me to realize that I can have a company, a collective where I'm working out this, these concepts of contemporary Indian dance as it sits in my body, right? Like my version of contemporary Indian dance. And as I'm experimenting, I'm thinking, okay, this work is totally in progress. And New York City is the place where I can share things that are in progress while I'm still developing it, while I'm still training and still be sharing this form. And so for me, I was like, the city really gave me permission. All of the art that I consumed while I was in college gave me permission to be like, oh, these folks are performing amateur night, they're performing open mic, they're performing uh, work in progress, and they're performing at the Blues Club, and they're performing at this theater, and they're performing at this dance space. Like, they're everywhere, you know? And then I see them at the dance studio, and then I see them at NYU, and I'm like, oh, you are in this world fully. And then I realize, oh, this doesn't have to be this thing where I have a certain level of knowledge and I put dance over here on the side and then here's my profession. This is where I'm going to make money. I don't have to like compartmentalize my life anymore. Like I can be dancing throughout all of this and I could be sharing throughout all of this. And so then as the work developed and as the training continued over time too, I just decided that this was the route that I was going to go, or at least I was always going to work in a way that amplified and supported the ecology that I was a part of. So that's why I've always been in arts administration as well, because I wanted to know what was happening underneath how we functioned as professional artists. And I wanted to know how the ecosystem kind of functioned with artists amongst each other and how everything fed into one another. So I knew that this was the space I wanted to push forward. And then over time, I realized, okay, 
I'm a very small part of this system. And yet there are many of us that are not afforded opportunities to at least expand the breadth of what's being presented out there in the world. And I have access to some information that I think would not only be interesting, but would allow the form to continue to grow in my small way, not as some torchbearer, not as some gatekeeper, none, none of that. As a person that's part of this, that is a consumer of this, that is a student of this, that is a patron of this, that is a peer of this work, I can also be part of it by contributing my work as it's developing in my body and just taking the elitism out of it and considering us as part of a community that actually relies on each other to share those lines started to get blurred because I thought like professional meant like I got to get to a certain level only then when I get everybody's blessing will I do that but then those lines and those pillars started to just like evaporate because those are not clear lines right those those are not clear benchmarks like who knows when you're allowed to share your work you kind of have to take the leap and I don't know if I was in another city, I would have taken that leap. But because of my experience of being in New York, I realized there were so many people that were figuring it out in front of me on stage. You know? <laughs> That's true. A lot and of contemporary so, dance is improvisational. Right. And so I was like, okay, I actually have to participate in this system. You know, I have to actually take my ego out of it. It's counterintuitive, right? We think it's this humbling thing. But no, there's a lot of ego that was stopping me from sharing any of my stuff and basically saving me from any scrutiny. And I was destroyed early in my career, like destroyed. They didn't know what they were looking at. So, you know, and I was young. I had a lot to learn. But what was great about it was that it was always on a continuum. And it was the framework and it was the context with which I presented my work. I think I did like seven or eight years of works in progress series only. Never hired for a festival, never hired for any real bill you know, it was like something I applied to, to present work and called my friends to come support. These are things I did for years only. And the lines just started blurring. I just started to realize, you know, this is my career because I'm doing it. I'm working on it. I'm developing it every day. I have a collective of folks who are here embodying this work too. I have training that I'm embodying and bringing into the space too. This is being a professional dancer, you know, but we're always still trying to figure out when you bring in culture and you bring in that context, and you bring it into kind of this like white supremacist delusion space of like what art is, then you're like, oh, there's politics involved. Oh, there's maturity involved. Oh, there's wisdom involved, <laughs> you know? And so now, you know, we are, as we, as we get older, we are re-examining all the time. What do we want to bring when we, when, when, when we come to the table? The other thing that you had mentioned that was really striking was about hierarchy. I know from my personal experience in India, I went through a lot of that myself. I was ready to start choreographing, in my opinion, 
in my mind and in my heart very early on, but I was discouraged to do so because of this culture of success that's there in Chennai especially, where you're not allowed to fail as a young artist or to learn from your mistakes and have an empathic audience of peers along with you to say, hey, I see what you try to do there. What if you tried something different? That's why a lot of the work when I was in Chennai felt very peer pressured because there were certain markers of excellence that you had to meet. And as a male dancer, you had to meet also a certain heteronormative marker as well, which I didn't. And the one thing that I really took away from when I first moved back to New York was to humble myself to realize that not everything about the dance style that I practiced in India is going to be understood. Uh So then you learn very quickly, what is it that people hold on to? What are the salient features of the style that people seem to resonate with? Doing it in public schools and all that, it really kind of took me by surprise. Like there are certain Uh things you can't do because it's religious. Uh So how do you teach dance in that sense of of any Uh South Asian style? So those challenges kind of then allow you to really explore options and compel you to experiment, right? Yeah, I'm I'm listening to you and I'm having so many parallel experiences come back to my brain. Yeah, the the public school thing is, is, is important because, you know, you realize, you don't realize once, I mean, you have an ongoing realization that there are so many facets to Indian dance. And so... Depending on the situation, depending on the context of the school, depending on why the program even wanted you, you realize what the kids are going to hold on to. You realize what the kids are going to understand. You realize that some spaces are really love the storytelling element. Some people want to learn rhythms. Some people want to use their hands and do mudras all day. Like, you know, you realize how many facets there are to the work that we do. And then you also learn to not take yourself so seriously. Exactly. You know, you take kind of that like inherent thing that we have as immigrants, as children of immigrants. Because I think oftentimes when we are moving out in the world as Indian classical dancers, right, you have the whole Guru Sishya Parampara. And that was something that was heavy for me because of who my mother was a student of. So then there's that sense of responsibility and, you know, oh, it has to be worthy, And that in and of itself can be such a blocker. And I was thinking about what you were saying about how being in New York City and watching people, how they were constructing their careers was kind of giving you permission in a sense to explore. That was an experience that I didn't have, honestly, until maybe the last three or four years when I started looking beyond my hometown of Richmond, Virginia, and looking a little bit farther out of of what dancers are doing here in the United States without necessarily meeting all of those, the so-called path that I had in my head of what it meant to be a classical dancer, right? There's the imagined path of you go live with your guru for X number of years and they conduct your performances and they bless you and they say, now you're ready. I mean, who gets to do that anymore? I mean, context matters though. You know, context matters just so much. What you're saying is so true. I mean, I had a different experience than that because I didn't grow up in India, Mm -hmm. right? I had a lot of liberation and freedom and permission from an early age to cross train and other things. My mom was very supportive of that, you know? Granted, as I aged, I got more and more invested in Kathak which was interesting. But I had that very like second generation experience of like, I was searching for Uh. culture. I was searching for culture. I didn't come from being surrounded by it. So the real struggle for me was how do I operate in this space 
with relying on the quality training that I had. If I didn't have the establishment behind me saying that, you know, she's a trained dancer. When I went to India, I also trained in Manipuri with Guru Kalavati Devi and Bimbavati Devi. And for years... Doyens of Manipuri. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And yeah, I love them so much. They taught me so much about embodiment and movement and philosophy. A really important part of my contemporary Indian work is my Manipuri training. And they would be surprised... <laughs> Every year that I was getting stronger, you know, they were like, wait, you've been practicing. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know I live in America and I know, you know, that we think we're only getting the knowledge when we come here. But there's work happening yeah. there. You know, it's it's just not the same ecology. It's I'm not surrounded by masters. Right. I have my one guru who happens to be my mother and I had to do the search myself with, uh, you know, when I got a little older, of uh, finding other teachers in this ecosystem that will support us, right? And there are many, but it took a long time. So in my formative years, it was always like a big surprise that this girl from America would come and like be able to hang and like really be able to be with everybody. And it was always this like big surprise, you know, I would ask my, so why is everyone so surprised? She's like, you know, they don't really know the reyes that you're doing out there. You know, they think that once we went to America, we lost our work. We lost our craft. And some of us have, have tried to cultivate it in other ways. I cultivated it in a school, creating a supportive environment. The first dance performance that I ever saw was six years old at the public library, West African Dance. That was my first live performance that I can remember in my brain. And one of the next ones was flamenco. This is outside of Indian dance. And I was going to school with people from all over the world or at least different races, you know. So Ma knew like, okay, Brenda really likes to watch West African dance. Brenda really likes to watch flamenco. You know, like these things were supported and cultivated while the Kathak training was happening pretty consistently my whole life. And so it was always this really big surprise and kind of like a reverse way of trying to prove myself. And I find it interesting because the teachers that are here that I look to for support and cross training here in New York, it's almost the same because they have this great training from India. Then they come here and they share their work. And I often find that a lot of them, if they're new to America, they're also surprised that there are so many South Asian Americans who are training well <laughs> here. Like they're looking at us like, oh, you know quite a bit. And I'm like, yes, yes, we do. I have a good teacher. Yes. So it's interesting to navigate that space and then to go out into the world, the bigger world, where someone wants, let's say, Indian dance and they don't really know what they're asking for, but they know that they want Indian dance. And then you go out in the world and then that internal struggle that happens is like, am I allowed to be the face of this on this right. bill? Like, am I allowed to represent this thing? Like, I already don't really have the trust of like anybody <laughs> but my teacher and my, and my small community. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, should I, should Brinda Guha be the one out here like representing Kathak on this bill? Like that's the crisis that starts to happen. When we talk about identity yeah. crisis in the, in the arts, for us, that's the crisis that starts to happen because we don't know if we're ever going to get that legitimacy from anybody, right? So the only way to kind of persevere 
is to create contexts and spaces and frameworks in which you can continue to explore your work and create your own measurement of success because otherwise I'm just gonna I'm just gonna <laughs> die waiting for somebody to like bestow me a trained dancer and I have to like go to my trusted sources go to my economy be held accountable to people who know more than me of course forever being able to envision the work as a continuum is is better than trying to think of it as this like linear path upward and I'm going to like reach some elevation point where I'm great. Like I just changed the definition of what this work means and and it's it served me. I think also you are reaching out at the same time to the community especially to the next generation of dancers too. It's one of the signifiers I feel like that you are established in the field when youngsters start asking you questions about your work and telling you about what they're going through in dance and you holding space for the youngsters in the dance community. That's what's been happening to me pretty recently. I'm 36, so officially uncle territory. But I actually kind of started to wear that more proudly because people say, Anna, I have a question on Instagram, especially after the podcast. And that tells me, oh, okay, so what I'm doing has some sort of consequence. Whether it's good or bad is subjective, but it yeah. matters. Watching Kalamandir Dance Company grow since I moved back in 2014 and seeing where it is going now. Mm -hmm. And Wise Fruit is now in its, what, seventh or eighth iteration? Eleven. Eleventh. It's heartening to watch somebody's continual growth and development sort of in real time. And I think that's also a signifier of establishing yourself in a very positive way for the community. The other thing I sort of keyed on is, I guess, both of you, Kiran and Brenda, are, I guess, second generation. And I moved here five months before 9-11. Great time to move. Mm. Highly recommend it. <laughs> I'm shaking my head. <laughs> and so I was, I'm thinking about how, like... <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is loaded. That is loaded. Yeah. Yep. It sure yeah, is. It was uh, May of 2001. So my relationship with dance was already set of what... I thought it needed to be because by then I was, you know, 11 years, almost 11 years old when we moved here. What it meant to be an Indian classical dancer, that was already set. But I was still in my early foundations of learning. And so I'm here. I'm away from everything I knew before growing up in Asia versus being here in the United States. And it took me so long to feel that my training here and the work I've put in here still counts. The first performance that I remember seeing is Swapna Sundari, who is like one of the stalwarts of Kuchipudi dance. And that's the first dance performance that I, I have a memory of. I don't even know what it means to become a dancer in today. You know, as a 16, 17, 18 year old, I knew I needed dance for myself, but I didn't know how to make dance work outside of my own practice. And I think that's kind of why we're we're having these conversations because I'm having the conversation I wish I heard when I was 16, 17, 18, trying to figure out what can I do with my dance because I will die without it. But I don't know mm. yet how to live with it in a way that's not heavy. You know, yeah. and that weight you're yeah. talking about, like that's yeah. the weight. That's the weight of it. And it's like, how do we get that weight yes. off our back? Because I, I will push back and say, you will not die without dance. <laughs> you won't. You won't. And here's the reason. <laughs> and, 
and the re- and the American reason Horror I, story. I know, right? Part of the problem, it's packed into the yep. identity, but it's also framed to us like we need it to be connected to any part of who mm. we are. And I really push back on that. You are many things. And dance lives in a continuum in your body. So your embodied knowledge is untouched. Your embodied knowledge cannot be questioned. It can't be because you've embodied it. That's who you are. So yes, you can say that dance is a big part of me. But as we learned in COVID, as we learned in all these years, when you take certain variables away, like what's left? Your humanity is left. And dance had everything to do with shaping you as a human. And at the same time, you can also put it down and you can look at it and you can go, okay, how are we going to pick you up differently? How are we going to reshape this? How are we going to add new context to this work? It's not like armor. You don't put dance on to arm yourselves for the world. It is baked in to who you are. It's and also so not a drug that you take to energize yourself either. <laughs> no, no. And yeah. I just really push back on this idea of like, dance is my therapy. It's like, no, boo, you got to go to therapy. You got to go to therapy. That's, That's right. separate. You know what I yeah. mean? Like dance. Say is it not again your... for the people in the back. <laughs> Listen, dance is not your therapy. Dance is not going to save your life. You got to work on yourself like every other human being. You can't put yourself on a pedestal thinking because I'm a dancer, I'm sorted. You're not sorted. You're embodied knowledge. It's the same way as you learning to walk, you learning to read and write. If you get the opportunity to do so, you learning any other basic skill. We also happened to have been trained in dance and that's beautiful and making it a career is awesome and being part of an ecology that serves each other in this way, in this really beautiful spiritual way is awesome. It's beautiful and I'm all for it. But for us to think of it as this thing that we either earn and are allowed to put on like armor and then take off, somebody else can take it off of us. I just reject that. I reject that. You will not die without dance. COVID let us know how we feel about dance because it took away quite literally the space for us to work. You know what I mean? And does that make us any less of a dancer? No, it makes us out of shape. It's two different things. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's no, what it right. makes us. And owning that is such a big part of the real armor, the real armor, which is our humanity and our cultural identity in a space that's constantly evaluating our worth based on the color of our skin. That's when we look to dance and we go... I have gems inside of me, you know, and I'm going to find a way to make these gems shine. And and dance, it's not going to save you. It is going to be in you forever. If I can, you know, circle back to the original question, which was not question, but the provocation of, of the next generation, that is what I'm finally realizing I need to be telling my students. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. You know, I actually yes. need to be telling them whatever I know, passing that on, you know, with my mother's blessing, with my teacher's blessings, I teach them about the form. But I also teach them that the form is going to continue with or without you. Yes. Yes. The form is going to keep going with or without you. And so your humanity matters and your experience here 
matters. And if there's no space for you here, then it's my responsibility to make that space for you so that you can be here in your fullness while getting in touch with your roots while learning this form. That's the conversation we have to have now. It's like you are not going to be given some kind of medal after you reach a certain level of excellence because that context does not exist here. You actually have to make meaning of this differently. It's a new framework. It's a new framework. And I really honor all the intergenerational conversations I have with my elders about these things, right? Because this is where the transition is happening, right? And it's important that the kids know what it was and where we're going. It's interesting because I've had some uh, some similar experiences with teaching Abhinaya, which was called by experiences of doing workshops abroad. Like, for example, when I was in Spain, the lead dancer was my teacher's senior student, and she had to do a workshop. And it was a common padam that we do with the Kandita Nayaka, who is betrayed and all that and angry. She was trying to teach it, but it didn't translate in English because many of the participants didn't speak English. And I happened to speak Spanish. So I started to say in Spanish what this padam meant. Mm. And people were like, I know what this is. This is like my husband. I hate him. <laughs> this is like my boyfriend. <laughs> Screw him, you know? You know, and it was a response in Spanish because you changed the context and the language. It's still Indian, you know what I mean? It's still an Indian song, but you humanize it, right? By connecting it with who you're with at the time. With students, for example, you can't say, you know, why art thou not with thy money in my hand for my services? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Certain songs are kind of misconstrued because it hasn't been taught using the language we embody today. But to describe something that's of a past, like, say, a courtesan who is demanding payment for services, right? How do you explain that to contemporary young students of dance? It's very difficult, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you change the language, you change the frame and the context a bit, and you start to make those connections based on humanness, right? So then you start compelling your students to think about what are aspects of their life that they're going through right now that could possibly relate to the song? And how can they use the language that they use? Like, you know, they'll say, you know, F-boy for this Naika who is in a padam, right? That's right. But it's precisely that person, you know? It just sounds so unkosher to the to an Indian teacher, like, why would we say this about the Lord of this Padam? But I'm like, he is an F-boy. Right. Because that's that's the vernacular we have now. And kids yeah. are like, duh, I get it. Exactly. Exactly. And I find that my teenagers are also really connected to that way of learning, understanding that these stories, like, they don't necessarily care about if Krishna was holding on to Radha's skirt, they would probably kick Krishna in the face if that happened. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's probably what they would do. But then tapping into the emotion of that and then connecting back to the literature, the annoyance of that moment. How do we lean into the annoyance of that moment when someone does not respect your boundaries? You know what I mean? And then how do we bring that back to the literature of what it's saying? And then part of my job as a choreographer is to make sure I create the space or as a teacher to create the space where in Katak especially, where you can actually interpret now where you want to end this bowl, how you want to end this bowl, in what space and what posture do you want to end this bowl? Do you want to end this bowl with pride? Do you want to end this bowl with annoyance? How do you want to end this story for you? Because I'm not going to tell you to then come back to Krishna like this if that's not how you're feeling. You know what I mean? But understanding that sometimes that's what the character would do. Other times that's not what the character would do. And then also not to mention 
identities are shifting too, right? Like I came out of the closet, like not very long ago within the last decade. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, all right, this is why I never connected to Radha Krishna because I was never truly into dudes. You know, so like I had to figure that moment out, the honorable attributes to the male characters that I was talking about. I was like, wait, what? Wait, hold on. (laughs) Women do this. (laughs) Like the men don't just do this. The women do this and they give birth and they are the creator of life. Like, wait, hold on. You know, and so then I started deconstructing gender and I started doing the dances differently. And I started realizing that like, oh, okay, there's probably a couple queer kids in my class, like connection made. They're probably not out of the closet yet, but they're probably there. And so now it really matters how I frame this story because they also may not connect to this very heteronormative narrative that's in this traditional story if they're having a different experience inside. And I don't know the answers. I really don't. But I try to at least frame it in such a way where we're centering the emotion or we're centering the literature, what the what the emotion of the literature is versus exactly what I want them to look like and feel. And these are some of the ways in which we have to shift in real time as we're working on this stuff. The important thing there is like, it's setting that the context and the framework and also opening up the space to ask questions. Because I think that's the big shift from the little bit of training I had in India versus what we have to do here. We have to be asking the questions and we have to hold space for our students to ask us the questions and for us to say, I don't know. That's important. To be able to say, I don't know the answer to that, actually, I'm actually going to run back and I'm going to ask three people, three elders of mine, what their answers to that question are. I've done that so many times where I was like, I don't know the answer to this, actually. I really don't. Or also understanding that you have power in these spaces to be able to introduce different stories. Stories that are never expressed in this space, right? And explore different kinds of stories that, and and then now we're talking about access to information. Now we're talking about what kind of art actually gets preserved. What, you know, we're talking about a lot of other political things now come into this, but at the same time, it's, it's realizing that there's a gift here. There's a gift here to really shape the space so that this brown 16-year-old so far identifies as woman, young woman, is standing in front of me trying to connect to this art form and that there's space for her here. We have to figure that out. And the answer is not very clear. And that's what takes me back to community building. That's what takes me back to ecology building. That's what holds me accountable to my peers like y'all and like people that I work with in the field. That's what holds me accountable because I circle back with Kiran. I'll circle back with Sahi, with Sonali, with Parul, and I'll be like, okay, so this student asked me this question. I don't know any kavitas that speak to these characters. You know what I mean? Like, where can I go from here? Right? And so Without the community relationship, without cultivating that, I have nobody that can check me. So all of these things we have to redefine, take the cutthroat out, throw it out the window. And we have to realize that if we want these things to survive, we actually have to look to each other for a lot of different answers because these kids are way, way more proud of leaning into their multiplicity than we were. 
You know what I'm saying? And we have to create that space for them because it's worth it. It's worth that labor for sure. Absolutely. Hey, folks, we're going to pause here for this week's episode. Join us next week for the second half of our off-season chat with Brenda Guha. Today's episode of Off-Season Chats would not have been possible without the support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, and a special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you've heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services, subscribe to the podcast, and tell your friends about us so that more people can find this show. You can also join our conversation by following us on social media at @offthebeatdance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by visiting us at www.offthebeat.dance. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week for our seventh and final episode of Off-Season Chats, which is part two of our conversation with Brinda Guha. Off-Season Chats is an Off-The-Beat production. Bye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.